Good evening. So last night in the service of our retreat theme, which is deepening into stillness and opening to peace, we started to explore what are the conditions that get in the way of this deepening and opening, and what are the conditions that support it. And I framed the talk in terms of the path factor of right effort, or wise effort, which perhaps some of you might remember involves learning how to work with the whole range of what our mind produces, both the afflictive states and the beneficial states. So the first two aspects of right effort involve preventing unskillful mental qualities from coming up in the first place. But if they do making the effort to help them release. And that's mostly what I focused on last night, learning to recognize when the five hindrances are present and what we can do to let them go. So before we go any further, let's just see if you manage to retain any of that information. Shall we check the list of the hindrances again, in order, again? Anyone? Sense desire. Sense desire, thank you. Peter? Um, and, um, oh, gosh, there you go. <laughs> Put you on the spot. I put you on the spot. Now yeah. we should know desire and um, aversion. Yes, aversion is the second one. What's the third one? Sloth David. And Sloth and torpor, yes. <laughs> Fourth one? Agitation. Agitation. Restlessness and worry, classically, yes, agitation. And the last one? Doubt. Still quite a lot of doubt by the sounds of it. Coming off for an easy way to remember. An easy way to remember. The first two, the sort of the desire and the aversion, are kind of at polar opposites. It's either stuff that you're trying to get or stuff you're trying to push away. And the next two, the sloth and torpor and the restlessness, is again sort of polar opposites that the mind is either like dropping or it's really stirred up. Then you just take that on the end. Take that on the end, yes. (laughs) Good, thank you. That's great. So at the end of the talk last night, I just briefly mentioned how when we are able to release the hindrances, their absence almost literally makes more room in the heart and the mind for skillful states to come up instead. So in a way, this is part two of right effort. Which, learns, which involves learning how to help the skillful states to come up. And then when they have, how to help deepen and strengthen those skillful states so that we can experience a foretaste of freedom. So tonight, I want to turn to the other side of that and focus on a specific set of highly skillful mental states that prepare the mind to experience freedom. And that's specifically the seven factors of awakening, also known as the seven factors of enlightenment. Now, just to say, when I was putting this talk together, or putting together the sequence of the talks for this retreat, because it's a pretty short retreat, I thought, well, there's not going to be time to talk about the awakening factors. And also, because it's a short retreat, I thought, will they even be relevant? But then I changed my mind for a few reasons. One is because this is a retreat for experienced meditators and because of what I've been hearing in some of the practice meetings today, I realize the awakening factors are always relevant. Even if not all of you 
are experiencing all of them to any degree of depth, I hope that you'll get a clearer sense of where all of this right effort is leading. And a second reason is that in my own experience of being a student on retreats and also being part of a teaching team for lots of other retreats, I've noticed how it's much less common to hear about the awakening factors than it is to hear about the hindrances. So recently when I've been giving these talks, I've been doing a kind of informal survey and just asking, seeing, is that true for you too? So when I asked you last night to name the five hindrances, I think most of you at least heard of them and you could name one or two. How many of you have heard of the seven awakening factors? Most of you have heard of them, so you know what the next question is. <laughs> what are they in order? Mindfulness number one, yep. Not quite. No, not quite. Ross? Joy. Yeah, that's number four. Mm-hmm. Number two? Investigation. Investigation, thank you. Number three? Energy. Energy, thank you. And then number four was joy. Then? Equanimity. That's the last one. I'll come back to that. Donna? Tranquility. Tranquility. We're up to five, I think. Squeeze them out. Yes, it's concentration in there somewhere. After, yeah, samadhi, concentration is after tranquility. And then finally, equanimity. Okay, we got them. That took quite a bit of right effort. But we got there. So, again, just to see, you know, usually we are much more familiar with the hindrances and the awakening factors. And we don't have as much understanding of how to practice with them. And so this is unfortunate for quite a few reasons. One is that imbalance, it tends to reinforce our inbuilt negativity bias. The mind's tendency to pay a lot more attention to what's painful, difficult, challenging, than to what's pleasant and beneficial and ultimately freeing. And then the second reason is that all of the practices that are laid out in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is really the foundational discourse for insight practice, all of the practices in there are designed to support the development of the awakening factors. So if we don't know what they are, we're not going to get the full benefit of this practice. So for the practice to deepen, we need to learn how to cultivate these highly refined mental qualities and how to bring them into balance with each other. Because when all seven of the awakening factors are present, when all seven of them are equally well developed, that provides the optimum conditions for deep insights to arise. So even though this is a pretty short retreat, I wanted to at least give you a brief overview of what they are, how to recognize them, how to bring them into balance so that you have that information both for your daily life practice and for any future retreats you're able to do. So I'll go through what the seven factors are again in just a little bit more detail so you can start to learn them in order because the order is important. And as I run through the list now, you might just notice which of them 
possibly feel relevant, alive in your practice right now. And no doubt which of them might seem less relevant, less apparent. So the first one, mindfulness. We can just ask ourselves, is mindfulness present right now or not? And just by asking the question, we've established it. So the answer will always be yes. So that's a pretty easy win. And then the second factor, investigation. Is there interest and curiosity about my experience? Or am I just a bit zoned out? And again, just asking the question about investigation is itself a form of investigation. So we've got another easy win. The third factor is energy. So again, we can just sense in. How's the energy right now? Too much? Not enough? Is there some sloth and torpor residue or a little restlessness and worry? And when that's gone, what does balanced energy feel like? So we're not overanalyzing or overthinking these, but just getting a quick intuitive sense. The fourth factor, joy or rapture. Joy might sound like a big word, but is there any sense of lightness, maybe delight or appreciation of my experience right now? And then tranquility, serenity, calm. Is that present to any extent or not? This is the precursor for the stillness that's in the title of this retreat. So we can start to recognize how does tranquility feel in the body and the mind. And then the sixth factor, samadhi, stability of mind, steadiness, unification. How gathered and steady and undistracted is the mind right now? And then lastly, equanimity. Is there some evenness of heart and mind, some balance and acceptance and ease? Is the mind just resting, not pulled into wanting, not pushed into not wanting? So again, we can just notice without judgment, is there some trace of equanimity right now? That's just a very quick overview of what these seven factors are. And you might start to get a clearer sense that there's a reciprocal relationship between the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. So to put it very simply, when the hindrances are present, then by definition, the awakening factors are absent, and vice versa. When the awakening factors are present, then the hindrances are absent. So I find it reassuring that there are only five hindrances, but there are seven awakening factors. So we have more of the good guys on our side. And when we have the good fortune to spend time in the supportive conditions of a retreat like this, a natural shift can occur. To the extent that we can settle into a more embodied way of being within the retreat container, then almost of its own accord, the mind starts to release the hindrances and to strengthen the awakening factors. It's just a natural organic development, if we can get out of the way.
So not interfering, not micromanaging, not pushing for them to come up. But even if the awakening factors are not yet at their full development, I'm pretty sure that all of you are already experiencing this shift from unskillful states to skillful states. This is only day two of the retreat. But it feels energetically very different from when you arrived on opening night. Does that feel true? That your hearts and minds are in a different space? So as we've settled more fully into the safety and the silence, the solitude, the simplicity, the slowing down and the stillness, the samadhi becomes stronger, steadiness of mind, the sati, the mindfulness, becomes more refined and continuous. And these two support all of the other awakening factors to come into play. Now, because of the truth of impermanence, these skillful qualities will come and go. But overall, there's a general decrease in the hindrances and starting to be an increase in the awakening factors. So just a little bit more context, generally, why they're called awakening factors, because when all seven of them are equally well-developed and strong, that provides the optimum conditions for transformative insights to arise, the kind of insights that lead to awakening, which is also known as enlightenment, liberation, freedom, nibbana, or nirvana, to use the Sanskrit word. And even though nibbana is the whole goal, the purpose of our insight practice, there are quite a few misconceptions about what this term actually means and even what insight actually means. So just to say what these two key terms are referring to, just as a working definition, the word insight is the usual English translation of the Pali word vipassana, and it literally means clear seeing, seeing clearly, seeing distinctly, seeing separately. And at first, these insights tend to be of a more personal or you could say psychological nature. So we're starting to understand our own conditioning, our personal histories, our psychological habit patterns. We're starting to see through some of the ways that we get caught in identifying with our experience. And then we can start to release that clinging. And then as the practice progresses, we start to understand more clearly that everything we experience is impermanent. It's imperfect or unsatisfactory, and it's impersonal or not-self. In other words, there isn't any inherent, fixed, and unchanging essence of me to whom all this is happening. And so now the insights are becoming more universal, and as they deepen and strengthen, we're able to let go into more profound levels of freedom. And yet, when it comes to words like freedom, awakening, nibbana, and so on, still, for many people, these words can sound quite abstract, or remote, or distant, or exotic, or maybe even meaningless, irrelevant to some of you. For some people, there might be a vague idea of maybe getting there, wherever there is, at some point in the distant future. 
but right here and now, those terms don't sound very appealing. For other people, there might be a more definite sense that Nibbana is pointing to freedom from suffering, but there can be an unconscious belief that that's going to take decades of battling with the hindrances and the defilements and the afflictive energies before we can ever, even for a moment, experience anything remotely like freedom. Either way, it's pretty common for people at the start of their practice to assume that Nibbana is something remote and mysterious and not really applicable to their own lives, or even that it's somehow presumptuous or arrogant to think it might be possible for us to experience anything like that, even though we don't know what that is. And so this may perhaps be another reason why we don't talk so much about the awakening factors. So I'd like to bring in one very practical definition of Nibbāna from the suttas, the discourses, that's been very helpful in my own practice. And that's the definition of Nibbāna as the heart-mind that's free from all forms of greed, of hatred, of delusion. In other words, free from those three core afflictive energies. And this definition of Nibbāna is something that we can experience for ourselves, at least in moments, whenever the heart and mind are temporarily free of these afflictive states, as can happen on retreat. Now, at first, these moments might be fleeting, maybe just nanoseconds, but as we learn to recognize them and to strengthen them, over time, they become more and more the default setting of the mind. So from this perspective, Nibbāna is not a big bang experience where we achieve some kind of sudden and radical transformation into a state of permanent bliss. It's not a static state that we get. It's more of a process that all of us here are going through. And that's why I prefer the term awakening to the term enlightenment. Because enlightenment is a noun and it can imply that Nibbāna is a state or a place. Whereas awakening is a verb, it's an action that happens, it's a process. And that process is letting go of the hindrances, strengthening the awakening factors. So Bhikkhu Analio, the German scholar monk that I've referred to a few times, he wrote his PhD on the Satipatthana Sutta, and he wrote two more books on the Satipatthana Sutta, So he knows it pretty well, and he makes the point that all of the practices within the four establishments of mindfulness, all of them are aimed at developing these seven factors of awakening. So every technique in the Satipatthana Sutta is a different way in to preparing the mind for the awakening factors to arise. So just, we need to know first when the awakening factors are present. So we need to get familiar with them. Just like we learn how the hindrances show up for us, we need to learn how the awakening factors feel in the body, the heart, the mind. So I'm going to go into them again, second time. And again, you might notice if you can find some trace of that quality in your own experience. Because even in the last few minutes, the mind will have changed. So coming back to the first one, mindfulness or sati. How's the mindfulness now? 
It's the first of these seven factors because we need it to know what's going on in the mind. We need it to know if the hindrances are present or not. And if they're not, which of the awakening factors might be starting to come into play. So mindfulness is the foundation that all the other awakening factors arise from. Now, as I mentioned earlier, these days there are so many different approaches to mindfulness and it's presented in a lot of different ways in mainstream settings. But in this context, what makes mindfulness an awakening factor as opposed to just an ordinary quality of presence is that, as it says in the suttas, it's unremitting. And unremitting means continuous. And that's one reason why I've been referring so much to this continuity of mindfulness through the whole day, through the whole retreat. So we're aiming to maintain sustainable mindfulness throughout the whole day, from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to sleep, through the formal meditation sessions, as well as all of our daily activities. And as I've been emphasizing, we need this to be a light touch, so you remember the hands coming together and the spaciousness within that. And if we have the appropriate balance, then it's not exhausting. And meditators on longer retreats can are able to practice mindfulness so continuously that they know whether they wake up on an in-breath or an out-breath. And they know whether they fall asleep on an in-breath or an out-breath. So you might try that tonight, see how you go. I'm not totally being silly. (laughs) This invitation to explore and enjoy, see what's possible. So one analogy for this continuity of mindfulness is the metaphor of boiling a pot of water on a stove. Imagine it's a gas stove. We turn on the flame. If we want the water to boil, we need to turn the flame on and just leave it to burn steadily. If we just keep turning the flame up and down and on and off, the water stays tepid. So in the same way, if we sit here for 45 minutes and then we go nap for a couple of hours and then we walk for 20 minutes and then we go back to our rooms and read or journal for a few hours and then we race up to lunch and mindlessly gobble down our food so we can fit in a long siesta after lunch, we're not likely to develop much mindfulness. And without this unremitting or continuous mindfulness, our minds are much more vulnerable to being invaded by the hindrances. And then there's no room for the awakening factors to develop. So this first awakening factor, mindfulness, is crucial. It's the foundation. And it brings with it the next one, which is investigation. Technically, investigation of dhammas, which may sound a bit more obscure. So the word dhammas is yet another of those Pali words that has a lot of different meanings. It can mean phenomena, all the ways we experience the world. can also mean the Buddha's teachings. So this links into right view, wise view. So you could say, knowing whether something is a hindrance or an awakening factor, that's a useful form of investigation. We're investigating our experience and understanding it in according to the Buddha's teachings. So it includes knowing the impermanent and unsatisfactory and not-self nature of experience. 
And so this factor of investigation is also about knowing whether something is skillful or unskillful. Is the experience I'm having right now leading to progress on the path or the opposite, leading in the opposite direction? And so one pretty simple way of working with this factor is just to ask those three questions that I've been offering you. What's happening in the body? What's happening in the heart-mind? How am I relating to this experience? Because that last question can reveal whether there are hindrances in the mind or not. And if there are, we make the effort to help them release. So investigation has a close relationship with the third factor, which is energy. And just investigating our experience often brings up a lightness, a brightness in the mind. And this energy, it needs to be balanced, again, so that it's sustainable. As I mentioned last night in relation to right effort, we often find ourselves swinging between striving, over-efforting, and then collapsing back into apathy. But when we are able to find that balance of the middle way, that balanced approach to energy, there's just a relaxed continuity to it. And in the discourses, it's described as unshakable energy. Again, we have that sense of continuity. Now, at first, it might take quite a bit of effort or energy to get the momentum of it going. But as this factor develops, it tends to take on an almost effortless quality. And at times, it can feel like we're surfing a wave, like the momentum of the meditation practice is just carrying us. And we don't have to do much at all at that point, except just very lightly monitor the experience of the awakening factors. So when this effort becomes in the terrain of effortless effort, it's usually experienced as being quite pleasant. And that allows the next factor to arise quite naturally. This is a factor of joy, or piti is the Pali word, sometimes also translated as rapture or rapt interest. So just to be clear, the joy that's referred to here isn't the kind of happiness that comes from sense pleasures. It's a more refined mental type of happiness. And because it's mental, it's more sustainable than the ordinary sense-based happiness of, for example, eating a bowl of ice cream or whatever that dessert was at lunchtime today. Most of us could eat perhaps one bowl of it and still enjoy it, but if we had two or three, it starts to have a pretty unpleasant quality to it. And this is very different from joy as an awakening factor, because when it's arisen, it can be sustained at times for hours, even days without much effort. Even so, eventually, this joy steadies and stabilizes and gives way to tranquility, which is the next awakening factor. Tranquility is a profound calmness of body and mind. And it's a direct antidote to the hindrance of restlessness and worry. However, perhaps because it's quite a refined and subtle state, it can take a bit of getting used to it first. Most of us are not used to calmness 
that's this deep. So when the mind does get very still and quiet and not much is going on, we can sometimes feel a bit spacey or unfocused or even disoriented. And in my own practice, I've noticed a few times when I've been preparing talks on the seven factors of awakening, quite often I'll just miss one out completely. <laughs> and oh, wait a minute, I've only got six. And often the one that I miss out seems to be tranquility. Maybe because it is so quiet and peaceful, it can be easy to overlook. And so this is one benefit, too, of going through the seven factors, knowing what they are. Just from time to time, we can run through them. And if you're anything like me, you might get six out of seven. And usually the one that's missing is the one that needs the most cultivation. So it can be useful. So tranquility is this quality of profound stillness and calm. And it powerfully supports the next awakening factor, which is samadhi. Now, as you may have noticed and I may have said, I've been deliberately not translating that word as concentration because as many meditation teachers have said, the English word concentration has those connotations of a narrow, forced, even fixated attention. And that can lead away from the true experience of samadhi. So a more accurate translation might be one-pointedness of mind or stable, unscattered attention or absorption in the sense that the mind is just naturally absorbed in the meditation object so the attention just doesn't move anywhere. And when we are able to experience the mind that's absorbed like that it usually experiences a huge relief because in daily life we don't even realize how we're constantly bombarded by sense contacts, by sights and sounds and tastes and smells, physical sensations, all kinds of mental activity going on thousands of times a second. And we don't even recognize the impact that all of that's having until we have an experience of its absence, when the mind steadies into samadhi. So the awakening factor of samadhi, it gives our whole nervous system a rest, a deep rest, a reset that can be experienced as incredibly refreshing and nourishing. So samadhi is a precious quality and that's one reason we've been putting so much emphasis on not using technology during the retreat, not reading and writing and journaling because all of those activities can cause ripples in the mind, keep us bobbing up into the more conceptual intellect aspect of the mind, and that prevents us from realizing that more intuitive and embodied wisdom. And that embodied wisdom comes from letting go of cognitive activity, letting go of intellectual activity, at least for a while. And then... From that state of samadhi, the final awakening factor arises, which is equanimity. So this is the mind that is perfectly balanced, deeply at ease, not clinging to anything in the world, as it says in the sutta. It's not clinging to anything, and it's also not pushing anything away. So the mind is just at rest, aware 
poised but not reacting. And it's a very refined state of mind. Even the subtle energetic vibrations of energy and joy aren't there anymore. And so this state can be sustained for even longer than the previous ones. And just to say, there's one pretty common misconception when people hear about equanimity, especially if they haven't actually experienced it for themselves. We can hear about it being a state of non-reactivity and assume that it's about somehow squashing our natural responsiveness or trying to make ourselves inert and unmoving and emotionless. So I want to be very clear that equanimity is not a state of disconnection. The mind that's resting in equanimity is fully aware of what's happening. It's alert, it's alive, but it's in a state of non-reactivity, and that's what allows the deepest insights to arise. So that's a relatively brief, again, overview of the awakening factors. And I'd like to speak more generally now about some of the challenges that can come up. Even though these are wholesome mental qualities, they can have their challenges. So as I've been emphasizing, when the mind has been secluded for some time, and even for us here on retreat, two days of seclusion, the hindrances are gradually starting to weaken. And at times, they might even disappear altogether. And at first, for some people, this can be a bit disconcerting because we've got so used to wrestling with sense desire and aversion and sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry and skeptical doubt. Those are unpleasant, but at least they give us something to do. So when the hindrances drop away, it can feel like there's nothing happening. What am I supposed to do now? It can even feel like we've lost our mindfulness because we can't say what we're aware of anymore. And sometimes this is because the coarser mind states, like the hindrances, have fallen away, but our mindfulness is not yet quite refined enough to be able to tune in to the more subtle states, like the awakening factors. So for some people, at first, these more refined states can be an acquired taste. We might start to discover ways that we're unconsciously addicted to the drama of practice to the highs and to the lows because they can reinforce a solid sense of me at the center of all of that drama. And we might be secretly searching for catharsis of some kind, craving intensity, or maybe even afraid of a more balanced and nuanced range of experiences. So sometimes when the practice does settle into that more stable and quiet phase, we can start finding ourselves pushing to get some of that familiar intensity back again by pushing, forcing, striving. And again, because we've been exploring in the last couple of days how mainstream society conditions us to be constantly productive, so it's not surprising that we would bring this tendency of doing, 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 doing to our practice and try to do the awakening factors which makes it harder to set, settle in to simply being with what is on deeper and deeper levels. So part of this training is training ourselves 
to recognize how it feels to have a mind without the hindrances. Now, the absence of these difficult mind states might not last very long, but it helps to loosen some of our so-called karmic knots. And karmic knots are those deeply conditioned patterns or deeply identified with stories that we've spent a lot of time and energy wrestling with. And at times this loosening of the knots can feel more like unraveling or even falling apart because our usual defense mechanisms and our personality habits and our self-protection strategies are starting to weaken or possibly even dissolve. And sometimes we find ourselves on shaky ground. And I've noticed this in my own practice at times that when we touch in to that newfound spaciousness, sometimes there's a kind of an internal backlash. And one symptom of this is the habit mind going back into overdrive and telling itself all kinds of ridiculous stories, getting lost in full-blown fantasies or creating imaginary doomsday scenarios, anything at all to sabotage this shift into a more open way of being. So this phase of the practice can be quite uncomfortable at times. And the best thing we can do is to keep making space, to bring immense patience, kindness, self-compassion, and to whatever extent we can to trust that all of it is part of a natural unfolding, part of the natural development of the practice deepening. So I've shared with some of you a few years ago, I found out that in the Tibetan tradition, the word that's used to refer to meditation, apparently it literally means getting used to it. And I find that helpful. It works on different levels. The idea of getting used to it can be interpreted in different ways. But in relation to those phases of the practice where there may be a sense of being in new territory of some kind, being in unfamiliar territory, then we can think of the meditation as simply a way of getting used to it, kindly, patiently, acclimatizing ourselves to these new and unfamiliar terrains of the mind. Now, all through this retreat, I've been emphasizing the balanced approach to effort, letting that continuity of mindfulness do its work that steadiness of samadhi do its work. So although the awakening factors, they are presented as a list, it's not about going through them one by one. Mindfulness, yep, tick, got it. Investigation, yep. At this stage of the practice, when the awakening factors are coming into play, our effort needs to be very refined. If we're approaching them with even subtle striving, that striving will interfere with its with their natural development. So the best thing we can do is just keep getting out of the way. And again, trust that all of this is unfolding exactly as it should. So in the course of just two days of retreat practice, it's likely that you may not have been experiencing the deepest strength of the awakening factors, but all of them, will have been present at times to some extent. They might not be particularly strong or stable, 
Perhaps they're just little buds, as Bhikkhu Analyo likes to say. But these buds have the potential to open into flowers, which in turn have the potential to bear great fruit and become mighty trees. So circling back now to where we started with right effort, when we have the opportunity to be on a longer retreat, it's possible to experience the awakening factors almost taking on a life of their own. And at times we can experience them as a kind of a positive chain reaction that develops its own momentum. And then we don't need to do anything except try not to interfere with that process and just allow all of these skillful states to strengthen and to deepen and to flow naturally one into the other, creating the perfect conditions for deep insights to arise. So at times when I have experienced this kind of natural momentum, this effortless effort stage of the practice, it brought it brings to mind an experience I had quite a few years ago now when I was camping with a friend in the Warrumbungle National Park. As many of you know, this is a very rugged landscape of ancient and jagged volcanic peaks. And apparently the name Warrumbungle means crooked mountains in the Gamaloroi language. So I understand the Gamaloroi are the traditional owners of that land. So my friend and I, we were hiking in all these dramatic landscapes and um, one Occasionally we climbed up this range of peaks that are known as the bread knife. And when we got to the top, because we were so high, we had an amazing close-up view of some of the wedge-tailed eagles that like to soar on the thermal currents there. And as you know, these eagles, they are huge. They can have wingspans of two meters. And because of that, they can soar for hours on end seemingly without effort, not having to beat their wings at all. And they can get up to apparently 1,800 meters. And on this occasion, they were so close that I could see all the details on the small feathers of their underbellies. And it was an inspiring sight just to see these huge birds soaring upwards and upwards and upwards on these wide, wide wings, seemingly without any effort whatsoever. So I offer that image just as a reminder that all of this is a natural process. And in the suttas it's said that just as a river inclines and flows towards the ocean, so the awakening factors incline and flow towards liberation, towards awakening, towards freedom. So may all of our wise efforts here on this retreat help us to experience that deepest freedom of heart and mind. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.